Welcome back to Shore Sports Talk on 94.3 The Point. I am Vin Abenu, and my very special guest here this morning is Jack Curry of the Yes Network, who had written for the New York Times and just published a book, The Inside Story of the Greatest Baseball Team Ever, the 1998 New York Yankees, best-selling author as well. Jack, absolutely love this book. Can't wait to dive in here this morning. And uh, first, I just want to welcome you onto the show. Vin, thanks a lot for having me. Thanks for those kind words, and it's always fun to talk baseball with you. So Derek Jeter said the greatest team ever. That's what comes to mind when when you were talking with him. Um, just some great stuff that you got out there. And in the very beginning, Jeter saying, we wanted to pummel teams. Tori saying, I think I managed the best team of all time. In in this team, with what was going into it, especially coming off that Game 5 ALDS loss in 1997, it seemed like a lot of guys got to work right away. I mean, Jeter was down in Tampa, moved to Tampa. Bernie Williams was thinking of that at bat against Jose Mesa. Mariano and so many others just got to work right away. Just left a bad taste, to say the least, in their mouth. So what was it, that offseason like, just that, that game itself and then going into the offseason? Well, Vin, that's why I started a book about the 98 Yankees. Seven, because some of what you just referenced, I've covered a lot of losing clubhouses and that clubhouse in 1997 in Cleveland, they were morose. They were miserable. They felt as if they left something on the table. Remember they won in 96. They thought they were on this magic carpet ride and that it ends in Cleveland and they didn't expect it to end. So I think a very focused and driven team came into 1998 Corey opened up a meeting in the spring by saying, we have unfinished business. And that resonated with some players. And after a rocky first week, they were almost unbeatable. And they won 125 games. No team has ever done that. And they really did, as you said, they really did pummel teams. Well, and outscored opponents by 309 runs. Not all, Nine regulars in the lineup had an OP, OBP of 350 or higher, which is just amazing. Um, it, it's like, did you get the thought in talking to some of these guys from that 97 team and taking it into the beginning of 98 that it was just merely a bad taste in their mouth or that they just wanted to get back to work after winning it in 96, coming up short of their goal in 97 of repeating as champions, and then just trying to do something about it in 1998, whatever that was, ultimately getting back to a title? Yeah, you had more than 20 guys on that 98 team played on the 97 team. So, Vin, I think you are motivated by failure. And I've had athletes tell me that. The joys of winning are sometimes not as joyful as the pain of losing. So obviously they wanted to get back to work. They're baseball players. They want to go and do their job. But Jorge Posada told me how much he was motivated by the loss in 97. I know Rivera was. Bernie Williams told me how he was. So this team understood how good it was, and they were not going to let that happen again in 98 they were not going to let something get away I was impressed by Bernie Williams who's my favorite uh, ball player to watch growing up uh, personally as a Yankees fan but he said something in your book I took that the loss so hard that I trained like I never trained before in the offseason mentally and physically and then Jack he went on to have probably his best season of his career great clutch hitter won the batting crown hit 339 won a gold glove um, and just really excelled in the playoffs as well. So in, in talking to Bernie and assessing what he did in 97 and trying to take that into 98, did you uh, get the sense that he was just a man on a mission? 100%. And I always loved covering Bernie. I feel a kinship with Bernie. I started covering the Yankees as a beat writer in 1991. 
That was Bernie Williams' rookie year. So I covered his entire career. When I spoke to him for this book, Vin, there was still some pain in his voice reflecting on 97. He took that loss very hard. We go back to game five and two outs in the ninth inning. O'Neill hits a double off the wall off Jose Mesa. Bernie Williams with a single would have tied that game, would have kept the Yankees alive, and he popped out the first pitch. And that burned inside of him to be better prepared, he felt, and to never let himself fail in that situation again. Now, there's a lot to unpack there. The Yankees have to be good enough for him to get back in that situation. But the best athletes and the best baseball players that I've covered, Vin, are the ones that find motivation and are the ones that are mentally tough and mentally strong. And I would put Bernie Williams very high on that list. And a couple of post-game, I guess, occurrences that happened, one with Joe Torre having that meeting with the players after the room, sitting in the locker room for 15 minutes. But I know David Cohn, among others, have said it felt like a lot longer. I mean, was it really just like a state of shock or just not knowing, players not knowing what to say or how to react to such a loss? I think it was a eulogy. I think that Joe Torre, in having a meeting where he didn't say anything, they were basically having their own little funeral for the 1997 season. And when I asked Tori about that nonverbal meeting, he said there was nothing to say. There was nothing for me to say to this team. Uh, he he was proud of them. He appreciated how hard they played. And in that five-game series, Cleveland was better. There were things the Yankees wished they had done differently. Mariano blowing a save in game four. Who would have expected that to happen? But I think Tori was silent because it really, in its own way, was a eulogy. And then once back in New York, you brought up another story I didn't even know about uh, with David Cohn inviting some players out to drink at a bar, I guess, in West Manhattan to sort of, uh, you know, de-stress or whatever after a loss. And then Cohn, I guess, got, got portrayed by a friend of his and then pictures ended up in the New York Post. So what happened with that get together with David Cohn and some of the others, something that he had to explain eventually to George Steinbrenner? Well, Cohn is the ultimate teammate. and He knew that when that plane landed in New York, he wasn't going to sleep that night. So he said, if I'm not going to sleep, I'm sure there are other guys in this plane who probably aren't going to be able to sleep. He asked a friend to keep a bar in the West Village open so that these guys could basically drown their sorrows. That was his whole intent. And as you said, what happened is some pictures were taken of them hanging out in this bar. The pictures made it into the post, and George Steinbrenner wasn't happy. George Steinbrenner is from Ohio. The Yankees lost to Cleveland. He was disappointed that the Yankees lost, and then he sees his players out in a bar, and it didn't look as if they were mourning the season. So he called Cohn. Cohn took the fall. Cohn said it was nobody else. It was my doing. I wanted to get the guys together to see if we could all sort of say goodbye to the season together. And George said, I appreciate the explanation. I appreciate you taking responsibility, but I'm still not happy. And I actually talked to Coney as recently as three days ago about that phone call, and you can still see that Cohn understood that he ticked off the boss in that moment. <laughs> yeah, that which couldn't have been pleasant, to say the least. No, of course not. Jack, going into the 98 season, certainly some changes were, sure, were naturally going to have to happen. One of them in the front office with Brian Cashman taking over as general manager for Bob Watson, uh, who recommended Cashman for the job. What, what was that exchange like, and what was some of the – any advice that Watson gave to Cashman about uh, working with George Steinberger and trying to do what he could to put together a team in 98? Well, I think the way I describe it in the book is 
Watson told Cashman that Steinbrenner was going to call him, and he basically said, you'd better be ready, bud. Better be prepared, and you better figure out if this is what you want to do. Cashman has been Yankees GM now. He's in his 26th season, and he never wanted the job. Brian was happy being the assistant GM. He thought it, he saw what it was like for others, Gene Michael, Bob Watson, to be GM. And he didn't necessarily want that stress. But he also was smart enough that when George Steinbrenner offers you the general manager job of the New York Yankees, you, you take it. So I, I think when you look back on that whole exchange, Steinbrenner calling him to a hotel in Cleveland, I'm sorry, in New York, where they're going to negotiate a contract, and Cash says, I'll, I'll take a one-year deal. Let's just do a one-year deal. I think that was Brian saying, let me see how this goes for the first year so, so I have an out if, if I absolutely despise this. Sure. And I guess year one went well. So I guess, did did you sense that even after 98 that Brian started to feel a little bit more comfortable or confident? Like, okay, I could do this? I think uh, Cashman is a confident personality. But I think when you're thrown into that situation, there's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of tests along the way. I'm trying to think of how Brian would answer that question. I don't know if he would ever say he became totally comfortable because you're always on guard. You're always on edge. You're working for a franchise where winning is expected. So I'm sure the, the more you get into the job, the more comfortable you get. But that was quite a way to debut with 125 wins in your rookie season as a GM. Two biggest moves that Cashman ended up making between 97 going into 98. The first, getting Chuck Knobloch and then uh, eventually Scott Brocious as well. But I know some you were looking at Chuck Knob, like you mentioned in the book, uh, an article you wrote in 97 about pitching the idea of the Yankees going after Ventura, Robin Ventura or Chuck Knobloch. What, what made you think that those would be the right choices for what the Yankees were trying to do? They needed a leadoff hitter. They needed somebody at the top of their order. Jeter had hit leadoff in his career, but I think they liked Jeter hitting second at that time. And Knobloch was a pest. Knobloch was a guy who would go up there and just make pitchers work. And that became the Yankees' mantra in 98. They really made pitchers work. I made sure to point out several times in the book where they would have good pitchers out of the game at two and two-thirds innings because they threw 75 pitches. And Knobloch was a big part of that. And though you look at Knobloch's career now and, and where it ended up going, at the moment the Yankees trade for Chuck Knobloch, his career was on a Hall of Fame trajectory. That's how good he had been in Minnesota. He has four years with the Yankees. They win titles in three of them. I think Chuck himself would say that there were there were that he left some stuff on the table that he could have been a better Yankee. But in '98, I thought he was real solid atop the order and, and really added a feisty that Yankee lineup. And then they went out and got Scott Brocious. Although I guess from what you were describing in the book, Jack, it sort of was like a. Uh, under the radar kind of pickup, and then it was like something with getting worked out with Oakland, with the Yankees sending Kenny Rogers over there for a player to be named later. Uh, it was basically like, oh, hey, you know, we'll give you Brocious, but uh, just protect him in the expansion draft kind of deal. Yeah, that's what was the reason I pointed all that out is because Brocious becomes the World Series MVP. But when you search for that transaction in your research, as I did, and went back and read my own articles that were written in the Times. The Yankees didn't officially say it was Brocious at the time because of what you just said. It was a roster crunch, so the A's were going to protect Brocious in the expansion draft, and the Yankees could protect an extra player. That was part of the deal. But then it was essentially a salary dump. The Yankees were done with Kenny Rogers. They didn't think that he could fit in New York, and they 
eight, ten million dollars, took Scott Brocious, hoped that he would play solid defense and maybe contribute a little bit offensively. He ends up knocking in almost 100 runs from the eight and the nine spot. And as I mentioned, being the World Series MVP and playing excellent defense. And I thought that was poetic of his of Brocious's numbers in '98, having 19 homers and 98 RBIs in his 1998 season. That was just so historic. And Brocious just, I guess, at that point, Jack just sort of resurrected his career. Played multiple positions, wasn't hitting well in Oakland, and then all of a sudden finds uh, this renaissance with the Yankees. He had a good '96 with Oakland, but '97 he really struggled, and there was a knee injury in the mix there too. But he just he just didn't hit. I mean, he had long – I don't have the numbers in front of me. I'm not, I mean, I know he hit 203, but there were long stretches. He had a 3 for 51 and a 7 for 60. And the Yankees the Yankees scouted him, though, and felt that they saw something there, that they felt that he was a guy who could, who could catch the ball at the very least. But they thought there was more there offensively. The year before, in 96, he hit over 300 for Oakland and had over 20 homers. So uh, – they felt that, that they could resurrect that player, and they did. Yankees, uh, before the season even started, had, and I, I don't think I ever knew this before reading your book, Jack, was that, that scary ride uh, while the team was in Mexico on their way to San Diego or out to California, uh, where the bus nearly tipped over, and players were certainly uh, scared, uh, wondering what was going to happen next. The bus driver, I guess, was given a tour of the land and everything. Um, in talking to the guys now from that 98 team and reliving that scary bus ride, uh, what, were, what were some of the things that you learned in putting into this book that before the season even began, that they were almost involved in a pretty scary collision? Well, put it this way. I interviewed Derek Jeter for this book, and one of the first questions I asked him were his greatest memories of 1998. He started with that bus ride. He didn't talk about winning the championship in San Diego. He didn't talk about Wells' perfect game, Joe Torrey's meeting at the beginning of the season. He talked about that bus ride. Now, I had heard about the bus ride previously, but I definitely wanted to fill in some more of the gaps. So players like Jeff Nelson and David Cohn and David Wells talked to me about it, Mike Stanton. And it simply was, in that time, the Yankees were using a jet that was an internationally based jet. So it couldn't make two consecutive stops in the U.S. So they had to go from Tampa to Tijuana and then Tijuana take a bus to San Diego. Well, that bus, you would think that would be the simplest of uh, excursions. And the bus driver did go up on a median and the bus almost tipped over. And yeah, there were some frightened Yankees. They got off the plane. I'm sorry, got off the bus, took their suitcases and, and walked from that point. And then started, and then eventually made their way out there. Like, okay, <laughs> we're done with the bus. We're we're gonna we're gonna make our way ourselves. And the season didn't get off to a great start, Jack. Certainly starting out 0-3, first time since 1985. At that point, the rumor swirling is Joe Torre gonna lose his job. Some of the it got to the you know attention of some of the players as well. But um, in that be in that sort of not so great beginning for the Yankees in '98, and then the meetings in the clubhouse, and then David Cohn talking to the team. What? It, how did that 98 Yankees team and Joe Torre kind of navigate through those rumors and those uh, uncharted waters there with getting things back on track again? Joe Torre was a cool customer, and even 25 years later, he told me he wasn't worried about losing his job, and I believe him. I, I, Joe could not manage like that. Joe always said, I can't manage if I'm thinking about losing my job. I, I, won't, I won't be effective as a manager. 
I remember writing a column for the New York Times around that time saying that the Yankees would be idiots to do anything to, to move Joe Torre. He won in 96. He took the team very – he took the team into the postseason in 97. Players loved playing for him. But all that being said, there's, there's always noise, and, and there's always a tension around the Yankees when you get off to a poor start. In 1985, Yogi Berra started off 6-10 and 10 and got fired. I think George Steinbrenner would take a do-over on that one, but it happened. So I think when they had that meeting in Seattle, it was imperative for some players to remind the team, hey, we've got to get this turned around, not only for ourselves, but to take the noise away from Joe. And they did. They had that meeting. They went out and beat the night. They won 22 of their next 24. They won 64 of their next 80. So it, it might then be the be the greatest uh, meeting in baseball history. And then one of the highlights early in the season was David Wells throwing the perfect game 11, 11 days before that in Texas. Uh, maybe it was the heat or something else. He he got roughed up a little bit in Texas. Yankees up 9-1 in the third. Wells implodes, becomes 9-7. Um, and then, you know, you really highlighted not just in one part of the book but throughout several parts of the book, the relationship between Joe Torre and David Wells and eventually how David Cohn kind of, you know, took David Wells in. They lived together. They roomed together throughout the course of the season. But with this perfect game and the relationship with Joe Torre and David Wells, what were some of the things you learned then and some of the things that you learned in putting this book together? Well, Torre and Wells didn't get along, and that was not a secret. That was known in 1998. What wasn't as well known is, some of what you just mentioned. I know Cohn was an intermediary, but it didn't come out until years later that Wells and Cohn, and part of making sure that you got the most out of Wells, was when the team traveled on the road, they just stayed in a different hotel. Cohn was a genius. He understood that that would suit Wells' personality. It would allow him to be a bit of a rebel. It would also allow him not to have to deal with authority, so to speak. He wouldn't have to worry about running into anybody at the team hotel. And that worked. And I think Tory liked that arrangement. I think Wells liked that arrangement because, as you mentioned, two starts before the perfect game, Wells was on the way to blowing a 9 lead. Tory talked about his conditioning. That kicked Wells off. He wanted to rip Tory. Cone asked him not to. And then, Vin, unbelievably, less than two weeks later, he throws a perfect game. <laughs> Just like a nice script there. <laughs> Bounce back. And then the night before, Jack, um, I learned this too from, from reading your book. David Wells, uh, I guess, uh, became buddies with Jimmy Fallon. They ended up going out and drinking all night, and David Wells showed up to the ballpark and a couple hours of sleep and some coffee. I appreciated Wells' honesty about all that because uh, he said, I shouldn't, shouldn't go out. I shouldn't go out. I shouldn't go out. It's Saturday night. i got to pitch tomorrow. He decides to go out, and it was a week after the Saturday Night Live season ended, but he did run into some people from the show, including Jim Fallon, and he said he stayed out till 5.30, and this was validated by Fallon on his show. Fallon talked about the same exchange and how Fallon woke up the next day, see Wells pitching, and thought it was an encore, thought it was a classic game being replayed, and then realizes, this is today? This is the guy I was drinking with until 5.30 in the morning? And I, I appreciate that coming to light, too. I thought that was just like a fascinating story, how you can go through that night and doing what David Wells did and then go back the next day and be able to hit the mound and eventually kind of find your groove there, and then all of a sudden you're throwing a perfect game. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a crazy story. It's a story, of course, that involves Wells, which makes it crazier. 
But when I asked Wells what the moral of the story was, so to speak, he said, I got lucky. He said it was a dumb thing to do. I got lucky. That's, that's all that I can say. Something stabilized him. He had a one, two, three first inning. He had a little more pop on his fastball than he thought he would. And I think he just got real comfortable. And then the crowd helped him. He and Posada were in total sync that game. He never took Posada off at all. And he ends up having a, a game that pitchers dream of. And then David Wells ends up later in the year starting game one of the ALDS, uh, getting gaining the trustatory. David Wells, David Cohn finishing in both in the top five in the Cy Young voting that year. And one of the, the I guess, the accidents that you highlight in your book uh, that David Cohn's touched on as well is, you know, getting bitten by his mother's dog. And then all of a sudden here comes El Duque, um, who had... A, I think it's really a difficult journey and an inspiring story given the circumstances, Jack, of just how El Duque went from Cuba to pitching at Yankee Stadium and everything that he and his family had to go through over the years. I thought you highlighted that really well in your book. Thanks, Ben. I appreciate that. El Duque's story has been told. There's There's been books written about him, but I wanted to make sure that I talked to him and heard his story from him. And I give El Duque a lot of credit because it took me a little time to hunt him down. But when we finally did speak, he was very open and very proud of his career with the Yankees. And you're right. Anybody trying to leave Cuba and come to the United States, whatever version of the story you have heard, there is some danger involved. That's not an easy thing. He was on a 20-foot fishing boat with a, with a motor, but they didn't really bring any food. And they ended up getting stranded on an island in the Bahamas and he finally ends up signing the Yankees. He gets to the Yankees bin almost instant. I, I wrote an essay for the New York Times that appeared in the Thursday New York Times about how El Duque was the most fascinating player on the team. The first time he threw for the Yankees, Cashman compared him to Michael Jordan. He said he had that kind of aura about him. And just his, his pitching motion as, as well, Jack, I, th- I always thought that was fascinating. I'm like, how do you lift your knee that high and then try and throw a pitch? I, like it, Just like trying to understand the physics of that was amazing. And then he was just so highly effective with doing what he was doing on the mound. Yeah, he did not give in. El Duque was going to make you hit his pitch. If you look at his career numbers, it's probably why he ended up walking a lot of batters because he was reticent to do anything that is against his game plan. So he was going to nibble and he was going to pick and he was going to try and make you make a mistake. John Flaherty was on, my colleague at Yes Now was on Tampa Bay when El Duque made his debut, and he said the scouting report they had on El Duque was a low 90s fastball, he'll throw a couple of breaking pitches. They were basically describing a middle-of-the-road starter. Then Flash said they didn't talk about his motion, they didn't talk about how well he hit the ball, they didn't talk about how daring and courageous he could be on the mound, and it was a much different pitcher when you stood in the box. And they had a great uh, certainly a great pitching rotation, but also a great bullpen as well, Jack, certainly leading up to Rivera with Graham Lloyd, Jeff Nelson, Mike Stinn, Ramir Mendoza, Darren Holmes, among others. And they just found a way, 93-1 and when leading after seven innings, just from rotation to bullpen, just how good was the Yankees pitching in 98? Well, you just mentioned that stat. They were also 120-1 and when leading after eight. If they had a lead, then the game was over. Um, they won 24 straight series. At one point in the year, they had a lead, 48 straight games. They were a lockdown team. There was a lot of confidence in that bullpen, obviously with Mariano at the end. 
But some of the other pitchers you mentioned, very valuable relief pieces who Torrey trusted, and their rotation needs to be highlighted. Their rotation won 79 games. I was at this stadium on Wednesday, and I was talking to Garrett Cole about the 98 team. I was just marveling about all five pitchers, and then Cole, who's a student of the game, he started going over them with me and started talking about Andy Pettit's cutter and and what the other pitchers in the rotation did. So, yeah, their their pitching was standout, and it's 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 one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, I think they were the greatest team of all time. Some of the other teams that are in contention for that title match their pitching against the '98 Yankees pitching. It's it's not close. The '76 Reds, unbelievable lineup, all stars everywhere, league average pitching. That to me is what makes the '98 team stand apart. And they had a, a great offense as well. I mean. Offense that hit well, hit for high average, hit in great situations. Tina Martinez led the Yankees in home runs in 1998, but he didn't even get to 30. Uh, what what was so scary and dominating about the Yankees lineup on a daily basis in 98? Ferocious, relentless, made you make mistakes, wouldn't help you out. One of uh, the things I wanted to make sure I did for this book, now the majority of the voices in this book are Yankee voices, but I did sit down with Jason Veritek, who was a rookie in 98. And I basically said to him, go back 25 years with me, give me your scouting reports on players. And almost every scouting report was him saying, they, they made you work. You couldn't get them to chase. Uh, they, they would pass the baton and let the next guy do the job. And I could almost see the, the frustration building up in his face, going back to how he was trying to get these guys out and how difficult it was. And by the time they got to the playoffs, I mean, certainly the pitching, the offense carried over and everything. They had their pitching uh, rotation lined up the way that Joe Torre wanted it to and everything. And then some really tough matchups throughout the the course of the playoffs. Certainly another date with the the Indians later on in the playoffs where the infamous Knobloch error was in there, but the Yankees ended up, you know, getting through it, beating the Indians and getting back to the World Series. But Throughout the course of the playoffs and getting to the World Series and event, the eventual sweep of the Padres, what were what were some of the biggest moments that you wanted to highlight about what happened in the '98 playoffs? Well, the El Duque game, ALCS game four. Knobloch has the defensive miscue in game two where he doesn't chase a loose ball. The Yankees then lose game three, and it's the most stressful part of their season. They're down two games to one in the best of seven series. You've won 114 games. You do not want to be remembered as the team that won 114 and couldn't close the deal. So El Duque coming forward in game four and shutting down the Indians, slash it's Guardians now, but obviously Indians, right. and it was just masterful. He he stood tall that day. Uh, earlier in the day, Joe Torre saw him in a restaurant and the restaurant was really busy, and so he was helping clear tables, silverware, and plates. And that was El Duque. He, he was going to be ready when the game started. And he came up big when the certainly when the Yankees needed him to in that game, and just kind of restored order. I mean, you think of the alternative that if he didn't pitch well or the Yankees lost that game, what could have ended up happening in that series to Cleveland? Would they have gone on to the World Series in such in what would have been such a deep hole in the ALCS? Yeah, it's a question that, fortunately for the Yankees, El Duque made sure they never had. Jack, in, in touching on the Knobloch um, gaff, the error again, some of that, I guess, that you pointed out in the book that David Cohn had a conversation with Knobloch, that you talked to Knobloch um, after Game 6 on Redemption. What it, what it, um, what were some of the conversations that you had with Chuck Knobloch back then and, and even recently um, 
with trying to hold, I guess, become accountable for that error, and thankfully it didn't cost the Yankees a series. Back then, I think Chuck was, there was some defiance about Chuck. I don't think he really thought he did anything terribly wrong. I think he was blaming it on the umpire. thought that obstruction or interference should have been called. Cone did talk to him about just owning it, and he did own it the next day. In interviewing him for this book, he did acknowledge to me that that night when that play happened, he said his life or that night felt like hell because he he felt like he had let the team down, and he was worried about being the next Bill Buckner. He was worried that if the Yankees didn't win that that series, that everyone was going to point back to game two. And so I give Knobloch credit, though. He performed well after game two. He was four for 13 in the rest of the series. And then game one of the World Series, everybody talks about Tino's grand slam, but Knobloch's three-run homer before that was huge. And a couple big RBIs from Ricky Lede, another one of those, I guess, unsung heroes, him and Shane Spencer in 98 who came up big. Um, and then a lot of interesting storylines as well in the World Series. You go Wells versus Kevin Brown in Game 1, of course. And then you had spoken to Ricky Lede before Game 2 about him reaching base four times in Game 1 and, and the story of Ricky Lede, you know, just kind of coming up big late in 98. What was what was that like? What did um, those conversations, what were they like with Ricky Lede and talking about 98? Yeah, I got to know Ricky Lede pretty well because I went to Puerto Rico and did a story on him while he was a trying to make it to the Yankees. So I had a pretty good relationship with him. I knew his personal story very well. He lost his dad at a young age. So talking to him at that point, you talk a lot about the past and what are you thinking about now and who are you thinking about now. But they were just in a zone in that series. Uh, he ended up going 6 for 10. He had some really good at-bats for a guy who had been in the minor leagues for a, a good portion of the season. And it was just one of those years where the Yankees got contributions from El Duque, Brocious, Spencer, and then in the postseason, Lede as well. And then certainly some storylines you pointed out, some guys uh, on the 98 Yankees who were dealing with, um, I guess, heavy hearts in some cases, certainly Daryl Strawberry battling cancer, um, and then a lot of players who you know were thinking of somebody at home. Uh, Scott's father battling colon cancer, Knobloch's father going through Alzheimer's, and then Andy Pettit on the mound for Game 4 earlier in the year. His son Jared was born with a with a cord around his neck and spent time in the ICU. So um, in, in learning, in going through 98 and then in learning these stories about what some of these players in 98 were uh, were thinking about, praying about, you know, hoping that, you know, things would improve at some point. Um, what did you learn about some of these 98 Yankees and what they were going through personally? Yeah, I think you could probably look at any season of any championship team, and there might be examples of this. They're human beings. They have families just like you and me, and there are things that are happening off the field. I think what you learned is that that team had a lot of camaraderie. They had a lot of chemistry. The way they rallied around Strawberry when he had colon cancer, uh, able to play in the postseason – Again, I talked to David Cohn a few days ago, and we were talking about Strawberry and just how, obviously, the Yankees wanted to win the World Series in 98 for themselves. But they were so proud of Strawberry in the season he had, 24 home runs. And then to hear a guy who's relatively young has colon cancer, it it shook them. But Cohn also said that it was just one more thing that motivated them to win. Jack, whether you're talking to Jeter, O'Neill, or anybody, in winning this World Series in 98, what were the biggest takeaways for you in this book? I just think that that team set the standard for playing in a way that 
everybody would hope that a team would play. Just ferocious at-bats, timely hitting, aces everywhere you looked at the rotation, people you could rely on in the bullpen, excellent defense, and then coming up big when the moments were the biggest. And you might say they cruised through that season. They essentially did. They won 114 regular season games. But when they had their big moment in the postseason and needed to stop Cleveland, El Duque wins, and they end up on a seven-game winning streak to end that postseason. They went 11-2 and in the postseason, outscored team 62-34. to So it just is a team that I think I proved or at least try to prove in this book, because it's an objective question, I do think it was the greatest team of all time. And I th- the last chapter points to that. You put out a lot of great evidence that points to that um, in this 1998 Yankees team. Jack, appreciate your insight, and this, again, an outstanding book, and I appreciate you coming on the show to talk about it. Vin, thanks for having me on. As I said earlier, always great to talk baseball with you. That is Jack Curry, the author of The Inside Story of the Greatest Baseball Team Ever, the 1998 Yankees. You can pick it up now. It's definitely an outstanding read. More short sports talk on 94.3 The Point right after this.